Well, it's good to see everybody. Welcome to Gospel of Grace Fellowship. We'll, we'll open up today with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for a new day that we can learn your word and learn more about who you are and what you've done for us. We pray that as we look today at the Lord's Supper again, we would see the beautiful nature of this future supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that all believers will be partakers in. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would have a greater understanding of your supper to remember and proclaim your great deeds. We also pray for Bob's coming sermon on providence, Lord. We pray that this would impact us and the wider body of believers, that we would believe that you really do cause all things to work out for the good for those who love you or called according to your purpose, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be with all of you here. I just want to do a little review because I know we have new people uh, popping in or perhaps you weren't here last week. What we're doing is a little session on the Lord's Supper and particularly we're going to be talking about this mishta, this idea of a supper that occurred in the Old Testament which you would normally have a reversal in which someone would be judged and someone would be saved. It might be an individual, it might be a group. And I mentioned last week, that this often happened at a feast or a banquet. And so let me just do a little review. We covered this last week, and I show that this mishta is a dinner or banquet, and people often either find salvation, judgment, or judgment at the mishta. Now, I gave these examples. This is all from last week, so I'm just doing a little review. Genesis 19, 1 through 3, remember that's where we saw the example of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot and his family were saved after this feast and Sodom and Gomorrah were judged. That was case one. Case two, Genesis 21, 8 through 10. Remember, that's where there's a feast because Isaac had been weaned. And after that feast, Ishmael was sent away and it was reaffirmed that Isaac was the son of promise. Again, one is, in a sense, being elevated while the other is being sent away. The third example that we looked at was Genesis chapter 40. That's where after a feast, or at a feast, just as Joseph had prophesied, you had the cupbearer. Remember the chief cupbearer of Pharaoh's court? He was restored, but the chief baker was put to death. And again, it happened at this Mishta, the feast. Fourth example we looked at was Abigail and remember her wicked husband Nabal, the fool. Nabal had mistreated David, and therefore he was mistreating the anointed one of Israel. And after a feast, he died, but Abigail was elevated to being the wife of David. So again, you have this reversal. The one is judged, and the one is elevated or saved. Esther, of course, is probably the most predominant, or I should say most prominent example in the Old Testament, because there, remember, wicked Haman... This Persian wants to wipe out all of the Jews, including Mordecai. Remember Mordecai? If you've seen the Veggie Tales, I had to watch that a thousand times when I had a little nephews and niece. Well, anyway, remember Mordecai, he ends up being saved, the Jew, but Haman ends up being murdered, or I shouldn't say murdered, but killed, executed on the gallows that were prepared for Mordecai. This all happened at a great feast. And so you see all the way through the Old Testament, there is a reversal. Someone is going to be saved and someone is going to be judged at a feast. And I said this is also alluded to in Isaiah 25. And now we won't read this, but remember Isaiah 25 talks about what? 
one day there's going to be a great feast in Christ's kingdom where his people will be saved. In fact, he will swallow up death for all time. No longer will we have to fear death, but the enemies of God will be put down. And that's going to happen at what we call the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so my point in showing you this is the Lord's Supper that we celebrate is a rehearsal dinner for this mishta, for this time in which you and I will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb because we belong to Christ by faith, and all of the enemies of God will be thrown down. So every time we partake of the cup, we're foreshadowing this great event. Now, what I wanted to do next, we didn't come to this, is I want to come to the New Testament. And oftentimes in the New Testament, Jesus would have a banquet. Either he would be invited to a banquet or a dinner, or he himself, his disciples would have one. And normally it was a Pharisee that would invite him, and you would often see a reversal at the banquet that Jesus was at. And we're going to see that here in Luke. Luke chapter 7. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke 7, verses 36 through 46. Luke 7, verses 36 through 46. And what you're going to see at this feast is that there is a reversal. Someone who should be saved, the Pharisee who knows the word of God, who had access to the promises of God through knowing the scriptures, ironically, they don't believe in Jesus, the Messiah, but a prostitute does. And so at this dinner, the prostitute will be saved. And if the Pharisee does not repent, he's heading towards judgment. So listen to what it says, Luke seven thirty six through 46. It says, now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. That's Jesus. And he entered the Pharisee's house. This is Jesus now entering the house of the Pharisee and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now stop there for just a moment. Notice it mentions that this woman was a sinner. More than likely what she was was a prostitute. But what's interesting is Jesus comes into the house with her. He's going to the Pharisee's house, Simon. Remember, Simon is to give an official greeting to Jesus who's coming under his roof. And that official greeting would encompass really three things. First of all, there would be anointing of the head. There would be a washing of the feet. And there would be a a kiss, a friendly kiss. Well, none of those things did Simon do, the Pharisee. Why? Because he really was antagonistic towards Jesus. And so the irony is this far-off sinner, this prostitute, is doing for Jesus with her limited means what the Pharisee should have done. She's giving him the greeting. She's anointing his, his head and wiping down his feet. She's giving him the anointing, the kissing, the greeting that the Pharisee didn't. Now, notice here it says in verse 39... It says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she's a sinner. Again, she's a prostitute. Verse 40, it says, and Jesus answered him, Simon. So this is the Pharisee now he's speaking to, whose house Jesus had come in. He said, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. 
verse 41. He says, A money lender had two debtors and owed 500 denarii, and the other he owed 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Notice verse 45. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. Notice verse 46. This is the third part now of the official greeting that Simon didn't give him. He said, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. So again, the irony is the prostitute at this feast is doing for Jesus what the Simon the Pharisee should have done. So the question is, who is going to be judged and who is going to be saved? And again, this is all foreshadowing the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And the irony is that the woman who is the sinner who came to repentance and trust in Christ, she will be the one who is saved in the future eschatological banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's the Pharisee who's going to be judged. Now, let me put up the rest of this narrative here. I got verses 47 through 50 on the screen. Notice it says, For this reason, Jesus says, I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, let me stop there just for a moment. Notice in blue and red this phrase. Let me pull up my pointer. Where it says, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much. The term love there, agapao, you might say, well, wait a minute. Why isn't something about forgiveness or gratitude used there? What's very interesting, and Jesus here was probably speaking originally in the Aramaic, and there is no verb for or noun for gratitude in Aramaic. And so perhaps under the inspiration of the Spirit, of course, Luke records it as loved, agapao. But literally, you could probably think of it as because her sins were many and she was forgiven much, she had great gratitude. That's really the idea that's being conveyed. And the idea then is he who is forgiven little has very little gratitude. And again, love is tied in to gratitude as well. Okay, so again, that was one scholar. I think it was a great point. In Aramaic that Jesus is speaking in, there was no term for gratitude. So it probably had to be copied down as love, but that's the issue. No gratitude. If you're not forgiven much, you don't have much gratitude. So she had a lot of gratitude, and the Pharisee really had little. Verse 48, it says, Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Think about that. Stop for a moment. The Messiah has forgiven her her sins. So she is going to be a partaker at the marriage supper of the Lamb. She will be there when you and I are there. She'll be in that kingdom. Her sins, past, present, and future, have been washed away. She has the imputed righteousness of Christ given to her. And the irony is that the Pharisee, who seemed to have it all together, who had the expensive home, who should have known the law, in fact, the Pharisees boasted in being those who obeyed even the most minute parts of the law. He missed it. Notice verse 49, it says, Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? 
And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How was she saved? By good works? Because she just became a better person? No, it was faith in the Messiah. She came to Messianic salvation. Where does it happen? At a banquet. Think about how many years earlier at Esther's banquet, you have a pagan who hates God's people. He's judged, Haman, and Mordecai is saved. Now you're in the New Testament. And there's someone who's seemingly far off, she saved, and Simon the Pharisee is judged. Again, all happening at this banquet. And so that's one of the primary imageries I think that we see throughout the New Testament is that when Jesus dies, someone's going to come to faith and therefore be saved, but someone else is going to be judged. Now, I want to talk about how the Lord's Supper was in fact a celebration of the Passover. When Jesus celebrated his Passover or his supper with his disciples, they were celebrating a Passover Seder. And I want to relate the four cups that they would have celebrated at Passover to what Jesus does for us. Because these four cups are also, I think, instructive. Now, the first thing I want you to do is turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 26, 27. Please turn your Bibles there. Matthew 26, 27. And I want you to turn there because I'm going to argue that the cup that Jesus gives thanks over was the third cup. In fact, most scholars now recognize it was probably the third of the fourth cups. And I'll explain why that is significant. But turn your Bibles again to Matthew 26, 27. This is at the Lord's Supper. And notice it says, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. Does everyone see the term thanks? Eucharisto, that's where we get the term Eucharist. Okay, so when the Catholics celebrate the Eucharist, it comes from that term for giving thanks that Jesus did. Now, the cup that Jesus is giving thanks over is, I believe, the third cup called the cup of redemption. Now, you might ask yourself, where does that come from? Well, it comes from Exodus chapter 6. In Exodus chapter 6, God gave four promises to Israel that he would do for them at their Passover, at their great Exodus event. And those four cups, there's the first one was the cup of sanctification, that he would set them apart as a people. The second cup was the cup of deliverance, that he would deliver them from Pharaoh. The third cup was the cup of redemption, that he would purchase them as his people. And the fourth cup was the cup of consummation. Let me show you where you find these. Exodus 6, 6 through 8. Notice these are the four promises that God gave to Israel. And again, these end up being the four cups at the Passover Seder. Exodus 6, 6 through 8. This is God saying this to Moses. He says, Say therefore, To the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Now stop there. Bringing them out meant they were going to be set apart as his people. And that's why this cup became known as the cup of sanctification. Remember the term that we have in Greek, hagiazo, uh, to be set apart, to be sanctified. That's what it means, to be set apart, to be different. So conceptually, if the whole world does not belong to God. In some sense, it belongs to the evil one. When God sets you apart, sanctifies you, it is once and for all. You've been set apart as a people that belong to him. And so he is going to do that. It's by God's power, not anything that they did. And the same goes for us. So they're going to be set apart. Notice he says, after that, he says, I will deliver you 
from their bondage. That's the cup of deliverance. I will also redeem you, that's the third promise, purchasing them back with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then, notice the fourth promise, I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Notice verse 8 is a continuation of the fourth promise. Notice the underlines, I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Stop there. That fourth promise is your promise too. You're going to be a partaker of that great, great land in the millennial kingdom. This is your kingdom too. And so the fourth promise, the promise of consummation, that I will take you out to be my people, that is a promise that still awaits future fulfillment. And so isn't it interesting then, as Jesus takes the third cup, he says... Drink from it, all of you. The cup of redemption is found in his blood. But there awaits a fourth cup. And I'm going to show you that Jesus does not drink of that cup. He's going to await to drink that anew with us in the Father's kingdom. In fact, I want you to see that in this very next section here. I've got Matthew 26, 26 to 29 on the screen here. Now, what I'm going to show you here. And Matthew 26 is the Lord's Supper is recorded by Matthew. And I'm going to relate this now to that fourth cup. We're going to talk a little bit about the, the cup that Jesus didn't drink of. So remember, he took part of the three cups with the disciples, but he doesn't partake of the cup of consummation. Why? Because that awaits future fulfillment. Now, this is very much like, do you remember when Jesus is at his hometown synagogue in Luke chapter 4? Bob has mentioned this many times. Do you remember that Jesus cites from Isaiah 61, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, right? And he cites Isaiah 61.1, but he stops midway through the sentence because the next part of it is, and to bring about the vengeance of our God. And that has to do with his second coming. So Jesus came to bring, yes, the salvation, but his second coming is about vengeance. In the same way, Jesus partakes of the three cups for salvation, But the fourth one awaits final fulfillment, the consummation in the kingdom. And so that's what we're going to see here. Matthew 26, 26 through 29. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, and again, that's the term Eucharisto, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, notice in blue, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, I want you to see here again in verse 26, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after the blessing, he broke it and said, to his disciples, what, take, eat, this is my body. In Aramaic, there would have been no linking verbs. There is in Greek, though. So literally, probably as he said it, he said, this, my body. Okay, now, why am I laboring that point? Jesus is sitting with his disciples at a table, and these men see him there. I think it's a really huge stretch to think that these disciples of Jesus thought that Jesus' body was being transformed into bread. 
He didn't change his position. He was still in their presence. Are you with me? Now, why am I mentioning this? Because in Roman Catholicism and to a lesser extent in Lutheranism, we have this doctrine of transubstantiation where the body and blood of Christ actually turns into the bread and the, I should say the bread and the wine turn into the body and blood of Christ. Okay, now that would be, yes, Levon. Oh, I'm sorry, we'll get a microphone for you. I'm sorry, right here, Carly. She's, Levon's right here. I think it would be very far from the thinking of the disciples to think that Jesus' body was now in the, somehow in the bread. Yes, Levon. Yeah, and not only that, um, in Scripture, whenever there was a famine or something, a judgment, it was a judgment against God when people ate human flesh. So yes, it's amen. Cannibalism to that's right. That's right. So uh, you see that in Leviticus 17, the prohibition body. against eating of the flesh, right? Because the life is in the blood. Amen. Yeah, well said. So this isn't very hard, but yet in church history, it gets distorted. Jesus is using symbolism. Yes, Joy. I'm sorry, Carly. Well, okay, we'll use this one here. I just had a question. I don't know if this is on. Anyway, oh, I just had a question. It's like, you started to explain this, but I didn't quite get it all. Why, how do we know that this is the third cup? Yeah, you know, what, what's interesting is when you look through the order, there's some scholars who will show this is the way the order of the service went. And when he would have given thanks, what they're saying is it either had to be prior to the supper, but then when they put the rest of it together, they say, well, it can't be there because of other events. So what they end up showing is that it has to be the third cup, and it gets beyond the scope of... I mean, we could give a whole hour-long message just about that, but I was convinced when I looked at the research that, yeah, it was the third cup. So it's so more I, about the order of the Passover It's about the order and what was being stated. Than what's yep. written in Scripture. Exactly. Okay. So it would have been... And by the way, you can look at a healthy source to look at would be Al- Alfred Edersheim's the book, The Temple. He explains how the order of the service would have went. And so... If Jesus held the same order that they did as Jews in that day, this had to be the third cup. Okay. Yeah, and again, we could, um, I'd have to do a whole long presentation on all of the things with it, but it gets uh, very involved with the type of food they had and the, the order of the service. But yes, Brian. Well, it's got to be the third cup because even the Jews put it in their Haggadah, so it's got to yeah, be. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but but um, as, a, as a young person, when I would go to my relative's house for the Passover yeah. meal every year, the fourth cup, which was left on the table untouched, yeah. okay, that, that was like... F- I didn't know anything. So that was like fantasy. Oh, yeah, that's pretty cool, you know. Yeah. And, and you don't think anything about it. But, but when you tie it to what's going on here, that's where it gives it uh, all the more meaning. The uh, Jews who are uh, still waiting for the Messiah, Yes, it's basically meaningless to them. It, sure. it, it really has no significance right, until right. you tie it with God's word here. Amen. So let's, let's t- just take a pause for a moment and think about the great s- symbology between Passover and what Christ did. What day of the month, the month of Nisan, were the Jews, according to Exodus chapter 12, verse 48, if I remember, what day were they to select their lamb? 
It was on the tenth day. What day did Jesus come riding into Jerusalem? The tenth day of Nisan. It's on Lamb Selection Day. So here the Lamb of God comes riding in, not just on any day, but Lamb Selection Day. What day were they to sacrifice their lamb? On the 14th, the 14th day of Nisan. What day was Jesus crucified on the cross? The 14th day of Nisan. Okay, so then what's, what's interesting is the Feast of Unleavened Bread would begin the very next day, the 15th day of Nisan. Jesus is in the ground on the 14th. He's in, so remember, any part of a day is a full day to the Jew. That's day one. He's bodily in the ground the full day of the 15th. Now, why is that significant? Because Jesus depicts himself as the bread of life. He's born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And he's in the ground during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Jesus himself said, unless a kernel of wheat fall and die into the ground, it remains alone. But if it dies and it goes into the ground, it comes forth with a great crop. So Jesus is raised on not just any day, but on the 16th day of Nisan, which is what? The Feast of first fruits. And so that's where God had commanded the Israelites, Leviticus 23, for generations, they were to take the first part of the harvest and say, well, Lord, we only have a little bit, but we trust you one day the rest is going to come. So think about this really meager amount of crops that would be on a sheaf offering. And they're waving it before the Lord, and they say, Lord, we have this little bit, but one day we know the rest of the harvest is coming. That's the imagery of Jesus' resurrection. We have that little bit, Jesus, that's huge, but the rest of us will one day follow, right? Now, think about where were they to go after the exodus? Well, eventually, they're to go to the promised land. Isn't it interesting who brought them to the promised land? Joshua. In Hebrew, Yeshua. Jesus' very name. So the lesser Joshua brought them into a lesser promised land, but one day the greater Joshua, Jesus, means Yahweh is salvation, is going to bring us into the ultimate promised land. And so as... Brian was astutely stating, we wait for the cup of consummation. Think about all the years that Jewish people have been looking at that fourth cup, not realizing that that Messiah has already come. And praise be to God, whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, we've been enabled to see that by his grace. And so that's the richness of this Lord's Supper. It's beautiful. And it's one of the ways that you and I, by the way, when we have Jewish unbelievers, we can use these things to witness to them. My wife was sitting on an airplane one day and she was sitting next to a Jew who didn't know much about Christianity and so she took what she knew about the Old Testament sacrificial system and she talked about Isaiah 53 and the need for atonement and he was blown away how the animal sacrifice is pointed towards Christ. We can use these things to witness. Yeah, Brian. Let me just sidetrack here for a minute. Yeah. Uh, Last night... I was reading God's Word, yeah, and I was kind of ruminating because I, I had a little preview from Bob about his Romans 8 today, right? and I was thinking that as a, a young Christian, I had a lot of, and I was telling Bob this this morning, uh, assurance is, is an issue uh, with a lot of Christians. There, sure. there's, at some point in time, uh, Christians are going to question whether this is all real yeah. or not. And as I was laying there, I said, the more we study God's word, the way he instructs us to, yeah. verse by verse, through his books, right. you're going to run in 
to so many things that, that tie together. Yes. And the more you know God's word that way, yeah. your assurance is stronger. And this is an example of what we just studied yeah. is that it's 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 too fantastic. It is. You you can't make it up. Amen. It it it's it it strengthens our uh, assurance in the Lord. Well said. Amen. You're exactly right. And that's why this you know think about remember years ago there was the shroud of Turin and there people were flocking to the shroud of Turin. There was supposed to be the garment that was on Jesus, his burial shroud or whatever. And I thought, well why do you need that when we've got all of this? But the point is, a lot of people aren't studying this or the scriptures. And so if you don't know the scriptures, what do you have? You just have things like the Shroud of Turin, right? And so you're always being led to the next cryptic, magical thing that may or may not happen. Gold dust, the charismatics have the gold dust coming out of the out of their vents trying to prove that this is a mighty work of God. And you don't need all of that. We don't, yeah, uh, visions of Mary in Roman Catholicism. We don't need that. Why? Because we have the scriptures. I always think about um, the very first Pentecost was the giving of the law. Remember what happened there? You have 3,000 that perish. The Pentecost where you have the giving of the Spirit. How many came to eternal life according to Acts 2.41? 3,000. And when you start seeing these connections, there's just no way that this is not supernaturally written and given. So the scriptures themselves are the greatest testimony of God's divine power. The scriptures are just awesome. Now, one thing I want to focus here on is notice in blue, Jesus says, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. What's very interesting is this is a promise that you and I can take to the bank. Jesus, on the way to the cross, remember in Matthew 27, this is verses 33 through 34, He's offered fruit of the vine, oinos, which is the term for, in Greek for wine. And it was actually laced with some gall. And by the way, the reason why gall would have been in this drink is the women in Jerusalem started seeing a lot of these Israeli men heading towards the cross, and they wanted to help deaden the pain. So gall had a narcotic property where it would keep you from feeling pain. So Jesus partakes of it. He takes some of it, but he spits it out immediately, fulfilling that he never would partake of the fruit of the vine. But also part of the imagery there is he went dead in the pain. He came to take it all. Now later on the cross, Jesus is offered something called a soldier's wine. Um, it's also called uh, another place. That's another term. Let me just read it here. Yeah, here, sour wine. Sometimes called soldier's wine, sour wine. This is uh, Matthew 27, 40. It says, immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge, filled it with sour wine. The term there, oxos, is not oinos. It's not fruit of the vine. So Jesus partakes of this. What's very interesting, why? Because it functioned like a smelling salt. It was actually comprised of vinegar, and it would give you a little bit more. And the point in this, and I think it's very interesting that he partakes of this, it's not true wine. It's not fruit of the vine. So Jesus is not violating a promise that he's partaking of this. What he, in a sense, is doing is taking a sniffing salt to increase his stamina so he can take even a little bit more. He took it all, the full measure of wrath upon himself. And I think that that's part of the imagery that we see here. So I want you to think about something that would have deadened his pain, the oinos, the fruit of the vine, he rejects. Even 
in the excruciating pain and suffering that he's in, he rejects it. Why? Because he made a promise to us. He would not partake of the fruit of the vine until he takes it anew with us in the Father's kingdom. So what a day that will be. But he will raise up that cup, and you and I all get to partake of that with him. And so today, when we take that cup together, let's remember maybe the next time we partake of it is with him in the marriage supper of the Lamb. That will be quite a day. All right. Let's move on. Oops, i got to forward my slide here. Let me put up, this is Paul's rendering of the Lord's Supper. And he, remember, was connected to Luke. And so Luke and Paul were connected here in the Lord's Supper. Now, remember, Paul was personally instructed by the Lord Jesus, according to Galatians 1.12, that he'd see, received revelation from Christ. And so that's why you see in the very beginning, he says, for I received from the Lord. Stop. Where did he receive that? Well, he received direct instruction and revelation from Christ himself. So he's receiving from the Lord the Lord's Supper and the instruction on it. He says, That which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Dear ones, I want you to look up here where he talks about the bread. Notice here, he took the bread and he says, this is my body. Now, I want you to think about the disciples who are sitting there. They see Jesus and they see the bread. And they know that this is symbolic of something he's about to do. And I want you to think about the problem in church history is we are taking that which is symbolic and turning it into something that's literal, but therefore distorts the meaning of the text. Let me say this. When you and I want to have an understanding of the scriptures, we want to understand them in the sense intended by the original author. As Jesus is talking about this is my body, do you think that there's any way that his body is, in fact, the bread itself. Well, no, that's not the original intent of the apostles. It's not the intent of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the big debates in the Lord's Supper happens in a text that we don't have time to turn to, but you remember in John chapter 6, Jesus calls himself the bread of life who comes down from heaven. Now, why does he say that? Because Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was he not the one that cared for the Israelites in the wilderness? He was. And what did he give them? He gave them bread, manna from heaven. So who gave that to him? Jesus did. The second person, the Trinity, was caring for, for Israel. But now he's with them again, and he's showing them that he is the bread of life. And so if they really want not just temporary life by eating bread, but eternal life, they have to come to faith in him. But he uses metaphors like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. But we have to know in John chapter 6, Jesus doesn't want us to turn to cannibalism as Joy rightly showed as prohibited in the Old Testament. How do we know that? Because his statement about eating his flesh and drinking his blood is bracketed by two verses that have to do with faith. John 6.29 and John 6.64. Therefore, we know he's using a metaphor. John 6.29, remember that's where he says, this is the work that you will do, that you would believe in the one whom the Father has sent. 
And then in John 6.64, he reiterates that all those who come to faith in him, they're going to be his people. They're going to find eternal life. They're going to have not just temporary life through temporary bread, but eternal life through the living bread, Jesus. And so we know it's by faith, John 6.29, John 6.64. And that's one of the big hang-ups with those in Lutheranism and Catholicism is that John 6 passage. So again, remember John 6.29 and John 6.64. Again, it's bracketed by faith. Faith alone is how you come to Christ. Yes, Brian. May I point out that when Jesus says, do this, that's a command. Amen. Okay. And, and as we point out here at Gospel of Grace, it's not every Sunday, every other Sunday, not even once a month. We just happen to do it every month. Right. But my point is, it's the only thing that God doesn't say, do this, celebrate my resurrection, Easter, doesn't say celebrate Christmas, doesn't yes. say any, and there's, there's nothing else that he does. This is the only one where he says, do this, and that's taking the communion in remembrance. Amen. Well said. So that's a command from the Lord, and there's a promise attached to it. You'll, as, he says, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's no command to go to the wilderness. There's no command to beat yourself. There's no command to forsake a certain food. There's no command to celebrate Christmas. There's, you're right. There's no command, no command, no command. Now, are we free to... You can celebrate Christmas if you want. Absolutely. And you're, you're free to get rid of cheese or whatever pork product you want. Yeah. <laughs> you would be foolish to do so. You'd get rid of a lot of good pizza, right? But you're free to do so. But you're right. There's a lot of things that the Lord has not commanded that people assume upon themselves that will make them more holy. And you're right. that This, this is one where God has commanded and given a promise. Absolutely. Um, One thing I want everyone to see here in this text is the idea of substitution. Notice he says this very phrase, which is for you. The preposition there, for, huper, it's it's very similar to auntie, another preposition. It really has to do with substitution. So you'll see the same one in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says, the Father made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, huper, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That all comes from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is laden with four references to substitution. You can read about it in Isaiah 53.9, Isaiah 53.12. It is all about the substitution. The Messiah does something for us that we can't do for ourselves. Namely, he becomes the one who bears the wrath of God. That's what he does. And so that's what the supper is remembering, that Christ did that for us. In fact, Brian, could you read that passage, Isaiah 53, 12? Providentially, he had the, it open right to that. So. Isaiah yeah, 53. Just flipped it open. It was right there. Right. <laughs> there. Must be true. That's right. That's right. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Notice the substitutionary language. He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That's the idea of substitution. Jesus doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. That is what the, the modern-day church, and I'm, what I mean by modern is really postmodern, the emerging church attacked. That this idea of substitutionary atonement, in fact, there was a man named Stephen Chalk. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of him. He was a theologian from, I think, Great Britain. He said that that's cosmic child abuse. 
No, it's not cosmic child abuse. It's the way that you and I are spared the wrath of God. Jesus took upon himself the very wrath for us. And so that's all being referred to here. You have the gospel at the Lord's Supper, right? The, the core of it. Now, the other thing I want to show is notice he says what? Do this, as Brian was just pointing out, it's a command, in remembrance of me. Okay, now, when you get to Catholicism or Lutheranism or even the Reform Movement, they really poo-poo this idea of remembrance. They call that merely the memorial view. But I want you to think about it. It's the one thing that Christ says and commands, do this in remembrance of me. Why is remembrance so important? Because the people of God are often forgetful. Not that we just forget simple facts, you know, the Pythagorean theorem or the slope formula, y equals mx plus, mx plus b or whatever, you know, not, not that kind of forgetfulness, but the idea that we forget the significance of what Christ has done for us. And I want you to remember, and I, I won't have us for the sake of time turn to it, but in Joshua, just write these passages down. You can look at these up on your own. Joshua 4, 7, it talks about as the Israelites crossed the Jordan. Remember they put 12 stones at the, where it happened? Why? Because it was to be a continual memorial so that the people of God would never forget what the Lord did for them. And you can read about that also in Joshua 4, 21 through 23. In Isaiah 51, 13 the Lord says, and again, this is Isaiah 51, 13. He says, you have forgotten the Lord, your maker. You've forgotten Yahweh. That's why they were off into idolatry. That's why they were going to be judged at the hands of the Assyrians and later the Babylonians. Yes, Luann's got a comment back there. Sorry, we'll get the, yeah, back in the back, Carly. Thank you. Okay. So Isaiah 51, 13. So again, the idea of remembering is exceedingly important because we are a forgetful people. So don't, here's the point as we're getting the microphone to land, don't poo-poo the idea of remembrance. It's exceedingly significant. It's not just that we remember, it's that we remember. It's very significant indeed. And so it's far more significant than trying to find the metaphysics of a body turning into, or bread turning into a body. Yes, Luann. I was just going to say that because we have such a tendency to start worshiping the wrong thing, like the wine or the bread. Yes. Just like the Israelites ended up worshiping the snake on the pole or Gideon in his shield or the golden calves. If we don't remember what we're supposed to remember, we'll worship the element. Yeah, amen. Well said. That's exactly right. That's the way we are. We like to live by sight, not by faith, but we're called to do the opposite, aren't we? Right. Amen. Why did you call it a calf? They knew yes. that calf didn't take them out of Israel. <laughs> All right. Bob just said, yeah, Bob just said, they, like the golden calf, they knew the golden calf didn't take them out of Egypt. It was, it was Yahweh, yet they made him. And by the way, Bob has pointed out that was a God they could control. That's why they like the golden calf. Yeah. So I want you to think about this idea of do this in remembrance of me. You see it reiterated again. Notice it doesn't say, he doesn't say do this and my body will turn or the, the, the cup and the bread will turn into my body and my blood. He doesn't say that. So why is church history coming up with promises that Christ never gave? Does it say do this and the, the cup and the bread turn into my blood in my body. Does it say that? No. So therefore, why is the memorial position being poo-pooed by Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, and the Reformed tradition when it's precisely what Jesus said the Lord's Supper is about? He doesn't say that I'll be spiritually present with you. He doesn't say that my body will be in, around, and under, as Luther said. He doesn't say that. 
He says, do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a proclamation of the gospel. Yes, Brian. Plus, they'll say he's perpetually being crucified. They have Jesus on the cross behind the podium. Uh, they don't realize he's seated at the right hand of God and he's interceding for his uh, flock. Amen. Amen. Well said. That's right. Um, to me, it's also, I think, a tacit denial of Christ come in the flesh. If Jesus was turning into the bread at the Lord's Supper, is that not a denial of 1 John 4, 2, which says every spirit that comes from God has Christ come in the flesh? So how can Christ be in the flesh and not at the flesh at the same time in the same relationship? How can he be in the bread and in the flesh at the same time in the same relationship? To me, it seems like a contradiction, right? So... What did Docetism, one of the earliest histories in church history, said it only seemed that Jesus was human. He really wasn't human. Well, if he's not really human, then you and I are left in our sins because he's not our substitute. He's truly a man, yes, and truly God in one person. And he had to be a man to be our new representative. He was tempted in all the things as we are, yet without sin. So how is it then that he would turn into this bread before his disciples? Well, of course, it's an absurdity. It's not what was intended in the Lord's Supper. And so I just want to hit what the Lord's Supper is not about. I want to talk about the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation. The idea in transubstantiation is that the blood, or excuse me, the cup turns into the blood of Christ and the bread, the wafer, actually turns into the body of Christ. In fact, listen to the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent, which is really a counter-reformation, countering the Reformation, 16th century, it said this, if anyone, quote, denies that in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist, the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ, are truly, really, and substantially contained, but sayest that he is only as a sign or a figure or by his power, let him be anathema. So we're anathematized, cursed of hell, if we believe in what the Bible says. Where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Again, Jesus didn't say, hey, when, as often as you do this, the wine and the bread turn into me. He never said that. So the Roman Catholic view is saying, if you believe what the scriptures say, that you're to do this in remembrance, you're cursed of hell. That's what the Council of Trent is saying to us. That's transubstantiation. Now, what about consubstantiation? Luther was zealous to avoid idolatry. He did not want to see people worshiping an element as if it had divinity. So he strained himself to get around transubstantiation, yet he really ended up in much the same place. He came up with something called consubstantiation, where he believed that the body and the blood of Christ was in, under, and around the elements. Now, why would he say that? Well, his distinction is this. Think about you and I believe that God is omnipresent, but we are not pantheists. So we can say that, yes, God is truly here. He is in, around, and among us, right? But he is, so if I said he is in, around this cup, but he is not the cup, that's a correct distinction. He's omnipresent, but he is not the thing. So pantheism or panentheism says God is in creation. He is the chair. He is the rock. He is the wall. No, that's not biblical. And so Luther was right to want to avoid that. However, Luther is not helping us much regarding the Lord's Supper. Uh, The analogy that Lutherans often will use is that of a sponge, that a sponge will soak up water 
And there's a distinction between the water and the sponge still. The, the sponge is not water. It has water in it, but it's not. That was the distinction Luther was trying to make. But yet again, let's ask ourselves the question, is it the point that Christ was making? No. Christ says, do this in remembrance of me. And again, we see throughout the scriptures, remembrance is exceedingly important. The Reformed position is this, that Christ is spiritually present, that he is spiritually present in the elements. So he's not physically there, but he, by us partaking of it, spiritually nourishes us. Well, notice it's kind of this mystical ambiguity where it seems very attractive. Yes, he's spiritually there. Well, does Jesus say that? Well, he says that, yes, whether it's two or three gathered together, I'll be there. I'll be in your midst. But the point of the supper is not that he's spiritually present. It's about us remembering what he did and the fact that he's coming again. That's the point. Why? Because Christ said it was. So why focus on something that we can't see and something that we can't know the supper is about, as the Reformers do, I should say Calvin in particular. In fact, Calvin said this, he said in his institutes, by true partaking of him, his life passes into us and is made ours, just as bread when taken as food imparts vigor to the body, unquote. Let's ask ourselves the question, where did Jesus say that? So metaphys- let's just get rid of metaphysics. Like, for example, if I were to say to you, the Lord created all things, you'd say, amen. Now, if you start asking me how he did that, I don't know. So why do we have to get into the metaphysics as Calvin does? Is if we eat it, we're being spiritually nourished. And let's just go with what the scriptures say, that we are to do this in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Again, let me go through each of these real quick. Did Jesus say, with, with transubstantiation, did he say, do this so that I will be physically present with you? No, he didn't say that. Did he say, as the consubstantiation people, Lutherans hold, do this so that I will be in, around, and among you? No. Did he say, well, do this so that I will be spiritually present with you? No, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And so that is the view, in my opinion, that has the most weight. That's the Sphinglian view, by the way. That was Sphingli who was a reformer, and that's the Baptist view, really, today. Okay. Now, one way that we can prove that we are correct in our view of the Lord's Supper is by looking at the warnings about the Lord's Supper. The warnings actually tip us off as to what the issues were that the Corinthians were struggling with. And so I want you to look at this promise here, or this warning in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. Where Paul says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, what's interesting is the Roman Catholics take this drinking and eating in an unworthy manner to say, hey, we have to have the right elements. We can't have the wrong bread and the wrong wine. Lutherans do the same thing. Why? Because it's going to turn in some sense into the very body and blood of Christ. But as you're going to see, what we're going to find in the warnings, it's not about what type of material you use for the Eucharist, the the bread and the the cup. But it's really about how we treat one another. That's what it's about. And so let me just show you some evidence of that. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 11, 19 through 22. 1 Corinthians 11, 19 through 22. And I'll show you what the actual warnings were about. They're about factions. And therefore, we're to wait for one another, as he says. So again, the warning is not as the Roman Catholics say or the Lutherans or the Reformed. 
It's not about you having the right food or the right drink, but it's about you treating one another as an equal at the table. 1 Corinthians 11, 19 through 22, notice he says, For there must also be factions among you, so that, there, that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat or drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I, shall, I will not praise you. So what was going on? You had wealthy Christians. Bob has pointed this out actually in a, a slide. They were reclining at something called the triclinium, where the wealthy people would hang out. And they had their own supper. And the rest of the Christians who were purchased by the blood of Christ were excluded and left off in what's called the atrium. And so whatever supper they were having, it was no longer the Lord's Supper. Why? Because Christ is the one who determines who comes to his table. And anyone who's been purchased by his blood gets to go. So what Paul is saying, if I could put this in a nutshell, he says, whatever your supper you're having, it's not the Lord's. You're having, some people are having, yeah. So you have, ironically, you have judgment because of this very thing. So what's the remedy? Keep reading. Let's read verses 27 through 33. Notice verses 27. Now, this is so instructive as to what the Lord's Supper is about. He says, therefore, this is verse 27, 1 Corinthians 11. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Stop there. You know, what the ref, a lot of Reformed churches will do to you is to say, well, do you have too much sin in your life the past week? That's eating in an unworthy manner. Well, I want you to think about that for just a moment. If it's true that you have to be good enough for the table, well, then you'd have two groups of Christians celebrating the Lord's Supper. Those who are hypocrites, who are dishonest with themselves, they'll show up at the table, but all of us who realize we've dropped the ball the past week or month, we're not going to go, right? You're going to have the people who fool themselves and those who are too timid. Well, that's not what's being referred to here. Notice... He says, but a man must examine himself, verse 28, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, stop there. This has led this examining oneself to all this introspection. Am I really good enough for the table? That is not, not Paul's point at all. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 that he does not even pass judgment upon himself. Why? Because God alone is the heart knower. You can deceive yourself. So his point in examining oneself is not subjective, how good am I, but it's objective, and I'll keep reading. What does he want us to do? It's very simple. Verse 29, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. Now, what body is he referring to? The corporate body of believers. Verse 30 says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and number sleep. That means they died. Verse 31, But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Now, I'm going to put up verse 33. We'll read this together. Notice verse 33. He says, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Notice he gives us so then. That's an inferential conjunction. Does everyone see that in the box? Hosta. So here Paul is drawing an inference. What should you do so that you're examining yourself properly and you're not drinking and partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, wait for one another. The term wait there is literally ekdekamai. It's the idea of receiving one another. Mm -hmm. 
So the idea is you don't exclude other brothers and sisters who've been purchased by the blood of Christ from the table. That's how we are to drink and eat in a worthy manner. Isn't that simple? So we don't have to, as the Roman Catholics do, determine what type of food is appropriate for the Lord's table. We don't, as the Reformed tradition often does, say, hey, I think Jimmy isn't good enough for the table, or Billy Bob over there, he's not going to be good enough for this table, or he comes from another denomination. Ironically, that's a violation of the scriptures. The people who are fencing the Lord's table are the ones who are violating the Apostle Paul's command. They're violating the Apostle Paul, who was an authoritative spokesman for Jesus Christ. Those who say, you're not good enough for the table, or you haven't been properly vetted, They're the ones who are violating the command. Isn't it ironic? So why is that important? It shows us that, again, throughout church history, when people said the warnings, as the Roman Catholics said, about eating and drinking judgment or about having the right bread and the right wine to turn into the body and blood of Christ, it has nothing to do with Paul's point. Because Paul's point was about remembering what Christ did, and we're doing it all together. Let me leave you with this. And I'm sorry, Joy, I'll come to you... um, (laughs) I want to lead to you what the Lord's Supper is ultimately about. Let me tell you this story before we read this. I've mentioned this numerous times. Bob wrote about it in his article, and I love this story, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was a crippled boy. And let me explain his family background. Mephibosheth was a son of Jonathan, of, therefore a grandson of Saul. Do you remember Saul and Jonathan die in battle on Mount Gilboa? And if you recall, Jonathan loved David and David loved Jonathan. They had a covenant with one another. And the promise that they had is that if the other died, the other would show cassette, which is God's term for grace. They would show cassette to the other one. Now, why is that important? Because normally in the day, if you became a king, you would wipe out any rival, which would be a family that had the kingship before you. So Mephibosheth was a very lowly man. In fact, his name probably means a shameful one. And he came from a place called Lo-Devar. Lo is no, Devar is word. Probably if you were to just put it in our English vernacular, he was a nobody from nowhere. And yet he was, a, uh, he was crippled physically. So one day, David's king, and he's going to show cassette to Jonathan, Jonathan's household, namely his son Mephibosheth. He's the only one left. But can you imagine what Mephibosheth thinks? He thinks the king and the men are coming to kill him because that's what kings did. They wiped out anyone who could possibly be a contender for the throne. So Mephibosheth must have been just gulping, just quaking in his boots. The king's men come and bring him. And he thinks that's for sure, that's it. So listen to what it says though. 2 Samuel 9, 8 through, excuse me, 6 through 8. This is David having Mephibosheth in the throne room. It says, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness. There's chesed, the idea of grace. I will show grace for you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore you to all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table. There's the dinner regularly. Again, he prostrated himself. What is your servant, he said? This is Mephibosheth, that you should regard a dead dog like me. Brothers and sisters, that's what the king's table is all about. We're all a bunch of spiritual cripples. We're all a bunch of dead dogs who had no ability to come to the king's table. In fact, truth be told, we're all usurpers through our sin of his throne. 
all trying to be gods ourselves. All of us should be put to death. But it was through his cassette that he brought us to his table and that you and I will eat there the rest of our lives. You and I who can say, who am I but a dead dog that I should eat at the king's table? That's the rich imagery of the mission. What happens, I won't even get into the next slide, is one day at the marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus, through his powers coming, we're not going to build a kingdom ourselves. Jesus is going to build it for us. He's going to take his enemies and wipe them out. They'll be fed upon by the beasts of the field and the beasts of the air. This is all in Revelation 19. So the enemies will be fed upon, but you will dine with the king forevermore. And so when you and I partake of the Lord's Supper today, it's a foreshadowing of that. And you and I, I think that's the proper attitude to have when we do come to the Lord's tables to follow good old Mephibosheth and say, who am I but a dead dog that the king would give me this kind of cassette that I would eat at his table the rest of my life? That's what the Lord's Supper ultimately is foreshadowing. And it's far greater than transubstantiation or consubstantiation or all the rigmarole that you see in church history. It's far greater than that. It's about the forgiveness of sins and the absolute assurance of everlasting life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the promises of the table, Lord, that one day not only did you save us in the past, but you're bringing us to a great dinner that we recline at the Messianic banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the saints throughout all the ages who have trusted in you. We thank you that by your grace you do this for us, that we have nothing to offer that we're only a bunch of dead dogs to sit at your table forevermore. I pray, Lord, as Bob teaches us through Romans, the great doctrine of providence, that we'd remember that all the things that happen in this world are for our good, for our edification and our transformation. We pray, Lord, that we would be not just hearers of your word, but doers as well as a result. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.